You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Caitlin Connor has taken up a number of sports, including cycling, boxing, triathlon, and CrossFit. As an amputee, she is now interested in building up para-speed skating as a new winter sport. Outside of sport, she is a single mom, a model, and founder of a nonprofit called Be More Adaptive. And if that wasn't enough, she is planning to head to Ecuador later this year to climb Cotopaxi. Caitlin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has been a while. I'm trying to remember the last time we probably at least interacted in person. It was probably at an Abilities Expo, right? It was an Abilities Expo in LA in 2018, Eight, 19. I think 19. it was early 19, 19, because I had just formed BMA. Yeah, that's right. And then because there was a Abilities Expo in LA in 2020, and that was one of, like one of the last things uh, we did before before <laughs> the, COVID. Before COVID, right? It's, it's like BC. <laughs> yeah, basically. And I, you know, I want to for those that may not know who you are and what you're up to and what you're doing, I'd love to just kind of maybe maybe begin with um, you know uh, before you had your motorcycle accident, what uh, were you? How how active were you? What what sports were you playing? And and what sports were you into? So I didn't really play sports before losing my leg. Um, at the most, right before the accident, I had, you know, I just got married right before the accident. So I was getting into wedding shape. And that was just by doing like a couple quick hit classes, nothing exciting. So, but that was my experience. That was most of it. I mean, I was always the last pick in school sports. I even, as soon as I could get out of school sports, I did. And I went to music and then, you know, I just kind of didn't realize it was something I could do. And and so you were you were on the music and performing side then, huh? I was, yeah. I actually, so I mean, I've played music since the fifth grade. I've played the piano and I played the flute all through school, and then um, kind of dropped it at the end of of grade school. And then in college, I took a course called voice study, which I was a science major at the time. So I I literally thought I was signing up for a, a class that would study the mechanics of the voice and quickly realized it was a vocal arts class <laughs> and that I was, I was even supposed to audition before getting in that class. And the professor was trying to figure out how I even got in the class. So <laughs> luckily I can carry a tune in a bucket and, and ended up being a complete 180 degree change and ended up going to university for vocal arts. Um, but after a semester of that, I didn't want to become a music teacher and I didn't think I was going to make the Metropolitan or Broadway. So I let that one go. But I still play music um, pretty freely. And that's how I like it. I want it to be something I can maintain as a passion and not a job. Understood, because I, I, I'm right there with you. I actually grew up doing both, playing sports and involved in, in particularly choirs almost all my child child life at least or, or or student life and and i love that you you were working the the term that you used in terms of wedding shape because we're either trying to get into wedding shape or beach shape right you know if we know we're going to the beach 
Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it both. has nothing to do with actually maintaining your health. It's just I want to fit into a shape. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and and so uh, uh, then you had your motorcycle motorcycle accident. Uh, and um, were you, I, remind me, were you were you riding solo or? I was passenger to my now ex husband. And yeah, he was, it was not our fault. Girl was texting while driving and she T-boned us and I had a partial, partial amputation at impact. Um, he got injuries too, but you know, he's okay now. He's probably just going to have some pretty bad arthritis for the rest of his life, which is not fun. So, um, yeah, we, we got pretty lucky. That was also the, one of the very few times we actually decided not to wear a helmet because it was the very typical one block away from the house kind of accident. So we didn't even, we didn't even get a chance to go where we're going. Wow. That close to, that, that close to home. And, and was there, because you said you already had a, as a result of the accident, had a partial amputation, was there any limb salvage efforts or was it a, you know, lost, lost beyond that point? So at impact, I literally could see most of my ankle falling over to the side um, and then probably the best thing I did at that point was calm myself down and try to reduce any blood loss. I took EMS in high school, so I was actually equipped to be a uh, basic ENT. But when we got into the hospital, that's when they found out I was four weeks pregnant, which I did not realize I was pregnant. Mm. So we had to do all of the surgeries uh, while being pregnant. So I got minimal anesthesia, minimal uh, pain medications, minimal antibiotics as well because of pregnancy. And so for me, I, I kind of knew as soon as I saw the ankle that it was gone, it was actually really hard for my parents to let go of it. And I get it. You have a kid, they come out with 10 toes, 10 fingers. You expect that to never change, but it changed. So, I mean, for me, I was kind of just waiting for my moment to hear the exact thing that I needed to, from the doctors to highlight why I needed to amputate. And for me, the doctor who's the head plastic surgeon in Texas looked at my ankle and gave me my options, which were pretty dim. You know, they wanted to take muscle from my back and my leg and skin from my stomach and basically all over my body to try and reconstruct this ankle. And they actually did take some spongy bone from my, my hip um, before amputation as well. And to me, it just didn't make sense to kind of maul the rest of my body for something mm -hmm. that was not going to continue to work forever. Anyways, they said that if I got arthritis, then it would lead to a fused ankle bone. And that was my question. That was my moment was, okay, what are my chances of getting arthritis? And he looked at me and he's like, hundred percent, you're going to get it. And I was like, cut it off. I don't want it. Why would I, why would I want all that? Why would you not just fuse the ankle bone knowing that like, it didn't make sense why you would go through all of that process and all of the pain and create all of the muscle memory that that pain will create for your body to have even worse pain later. It didn't make sense all while being pregnant. So for me, I was like, Nope, don't need it. I'm going to focus on my pregnancy. I wasn't thinking about prosthetics. I wasn't thinking about sports or anything, any of the things that I've done since then. I literally just thought, how can I keep the baby safe? How can I keep myself from going through less pain? And that was my, that was my solution. And the doctor, as soon as I technically made the decision, because they can't make the decision for you, um, he said, no, for my body, I would do the same thing. So that was that was what I needed was that one moment. And so um, with sports, then were you introduced to sports as part of obviously some of your rehabilitation? 
Eventually. So I started, you know, I did lots of therapy until I got basically too pregnant to do therapy. Um, I went to water therapy near the end of the pregnancy, but the pool that I had access to had like mold on the buoys. So it just wasn't worth it for me. So I was waiting till after pregnancy, but the whole process of, of being pregnant and an amputee, one, I couldn't find anyone else who had gone through it. And mm -hmm. to this day, I've only found one arm amputee and one person with paralysis who's gone through pregnancy at the same time. So as, as a new amputee. So for me, it was this completely new realm that I was navigating in so many different levels. But as soon as I started figuring out that, oh my gosh, I have to learn how to walk over and over and over again. And it wasn't just because I had amputated. I had to learn how to walk four times. One, I had amputated. Two, my spine had started changing from being pregnant. It's the only time the body's spine shape actually changes is during pregnancy. Three, I actually broke my, my limb again. I fell out of my wheelchair and broke the distal tibia and had to start rehab all over again, all in my third trimester of pregnancy. So a lot of my pregnancy was done in a wheelchair. And then the fourth time, and hopefully the final time was after delivering. <laughs> and as soon as I stood up, I had to go to the bathroom after delivering. And as soon as I stood up, I was like, oh my gosh, I have balance again. My spine had gone back to what is normal for me. And it was just this epiphany that, oh my gosh, I've been fighting balance all these months beyond mm. losing a limb and didn't realize how much harder it was. And then, then I met my prosthetic company in the hospital and they, I was their first pregnant patient. So I gave them lots of practice. I mean, it took us basically two years for me to get into a permanent socket because of all the weight change. Mm -hmm. And um, once we got to a point of stabilization where we kind of saw it in sight, it wasn't time yet to do it, but it was the grant cycle for the calf grant for Challenge Athletes Foundation. And they said, I think you should consider a running prosthetic. And for me, I was like, sure. Yeah, I could run away if somebody chases me or I could run into the street and go get my kid. Like that was that was my thought of a running prosthetic. It had nothing to do with sports. But then when I got one that changed, I, I started going, ah, I can run. And then I started appreciating running, which I, I never had an appreciation for running before. I hated running before. I, I can, I can accept that. <laughs> I was in the army. That's a, that's the one thing I hate to do even still today. It's like, you know, I'll, I'll play any sport. Just don't make me run. I don't want to run. <laughs> and today, I just, you know, if you pay me, I'll run. That's kind of <laughs> gets to where it's at now. I'll, I'll, I'll run if you pay me. And so what, I mean, you know, you had a lot going on. What, what was it like? I mean, like, what kind of resolve did you have to have? You know, what kind, I mean, I know that there were, obviously it was difficult. Any, any of those, even pregnancies, you know, difficult to go through, particularly your first one, right? So going through two things at once. What what kind of mental, you know, uh, resolve did you have to have? Well, I mean, it wasn't even just two things at once. Right before the accident, we had just gotten married. And, and just a few months before we got married, my brother passed away. And then right after we got married, which was right before the accident, my um, my ex's mom had gotten cancer, stage four liver and colon cancer. So we were dealing with all these other layers as well as pregnancy and amputation and injury and disability in general. And then you throw in things like emotions from bring, being pregnant and all the hormone changes. And mm -hmm. I lost my job. Eventually we had to move. Eventually my mom later got cancer and she died from leukemia. We had all these things happen at once. 
And it took me two years to realize that I actually had PTSD from the accident. And I didn't realize how many emotions I kind of shoved under the rug. And it was a, it was a good thing and a bad thing. It was good because I was focused on the baby and literally in the hospital, I remember thinking, I can't let anything negative in this room because if I do, it could affect the baby. And so it allowed me to kind of shut down negativity. But at the same time, I wasn't acknowledging the pain that I was going through and how normal it was to feel these things. And it literally took me listening to a commercial. I remember it being like 11 p.m. at night, commercial on the radio comes on. And all it does is list the symptoms of PTSD. And it doesn't relate it to the military. And that was the first time I'd actually heard PTSD not related to the military. And I listened to all the symptoms and I went, check, check, check. Everything marked the box for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, this totally makes sense. And just like that, the acknowledgement of it was, was kind of a burden lifted off my shoulder. And that was kind of the, the moment I actually started getting into sports. I started working out. It started becoming a way for me to have an outlet, a positive outlet that was healthy for my body. And I needed that and didn't realize it. And over the next few years, I still had lots of pain. I still had my mom passed away. His mom passed away. Um, you know, had divorced. That was painful. We co-parent really well now, but we still have our differences. So, I mean, all of those little things are difficult to navigate and that's just life. Life is, life mm -hmm. is full of twists and turns and it just depends how you respond to it. And, and so what, based on, on obviously um, the success that you've had, how, what, how would you, how would you, what recommendation would you give in terms of how people should respond to those big twists and turns? I mean, everybody's going to respond differently. I think it's a bit about finding your process and what works for you. For me, if I have a bad day, I, I literally shut down from the world for a bit. I work in digital marketing, so I'm literally the voice for a lot of different companies. And I try to be a voice of positive positivity for those companies. But that doesn't mean that I don't have those bad days too. And when I have those bad days, I just have to put everything away. And I have to I have to shut down. I have to take a break. So I mean, I have so many unread emails and messages because of it. But if I sit there and focus on every single one, then I shut down and I can't focus on what I need to. And sometimes that thing that I need to focus on is actually me. And so it's it's the saying of pouring from an empty cup. I can't pour from the cup if nothing's left. Mm -hmm. And I have to take my days where I don't do anything that actually feels productive. And I don't cross anything off the list. But then the next day, everything gets crossed off the list. And so for me, that's my process. If I get frustrated, I like to write it down. If I, if I put it down in words, it works better than when I'm speaking out loud or not acknowledging at all. So, I mean, I think everyone needs to kind of find their thought process and what works for them and just trying a bunch of different methods and getting comfortable with yourself and being comfortable well, being uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, and and just accepting the fact that we all have bad days. That's number that's yeah, absolutely rule number uh, one. Awful days. Yep, it's, and it's completely normal. And I wish I wish media would talk about it more. And I think because of COVID, we've kind of media has changed where they will talk about those bad days more. As because guess what? They realize they're all going through it. I think that is the one thing that joined a lot of the world together with COVID was we realized it sucks for everyone. There, there was that was just like a moment for the world to go oh, wow, we're all stuck here. Like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this, this massive ball of negative energy? 
how do we deal with it? You have the ones who dealt with it good or well, and then you have the ones who dealt with it like trash and they're still suffering. And, and how do you get out of that? And a lot of times you just have to work together with somebody else or allow yourself to go through those emotions and process them. And you talked about, obviously you starting, you know, at that point or after, after some of those things were, had happened, you started working out physically, but I imagine, was it also kind of a mental and, and emotional uh, release as well? Absolutely. I mean, we're talking physically, mentally, emotionally, you're, you're going through, your body's going through the, the motion of creating endorphins, right? Which physically feels good, right? Then mentally you're, you're taking a moment to stop thinking about something. You're literally only thinking about the workout and what the task is in front of you. And that, that's kind of what I needed to learn was to learn how to stop thinking. I, I'm, I have ADHD and my brain goes all over the place. So for me to learn how to stop thinking was very important. I mean, working out for me became not only the, the mental and physical um, aspect, it, it became the one thing I didn't realize about sports because I'd missed out on it. And that was community. I completely mm-hmm. missed out on community growing up. I did sports in school and I literally just thought these are, these are people that were born a natural at sports. And I didn't realize maybe some of them go home and practice with their parents, or maybe some of them go home and practice all the time. You think of like, you know, Tiger Woods, he's in the backyard as a kid practicing all day, every day, right? It's not like he woke up and just knew how to do it. He practiced all the time. So for me to think that I could get out there and run a six minute mile without practicing ever was a little unrealistic. So, (laughs) but for me, the having other people around that you get to see and struggle with and see them grow and they get to see you grow. And it's very rewarding. I mean, one of my favorite things to do in a race or in a workout is as soon as I start feeling like I want to stop, I look for somebody else who's already stopped. And I say, Hey, 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 you want to come work out with me? And they go, yeah, yeah, let's go. And at the end of it, they're like, Oh, thanks for encouraging me. You're so inspirational. I'm like, no, no, no. Thank you for holding me accountable. I was about to quit right before I asked you. They don't, they don't understand that. It's, it's completely normal to let go for a second. So I like to pull other people in with me. And, and so I know one of the things you're doing is, is romp. Can you talk a little about, about what that is? Uh, with romp, yeah. So romp is uh, the Range of Motion Project. It's a nonprofit that raises money to give prosthetics to people in Ecuador who very badly need prosthetics. We're talking people that they, they literally just need to get to work to do their job and they need a prosthetic to do that. So, and they actually have a clinic down in Ecuador that they can, you know, build those prosthetics on site. So ROM, that's what they do. They're there to to help fundraise for a country that doesn't have the kind of resources we do in the U S so each year ROMP fundraises and sends a team to climb Cotopaxi in Ecuador. And so I was part of the team for 2020 and then, well, COVID hit. And so that delayed it and we stopped because of that. And then we kind of moved the team to the next year. So 2021, but for 2021, I feel like I lost at least two years of my life there. It's really hard to keep track of that timeline. But for 2021, I had a major surgery. Um, I actually had a small precancerous scare, nothing, no big deal, but it was a preventative surgery. 
And so that kind of put me out. And so now this year, we're kind of gearing up to get get part of, be a part of the team again. Um, so Romp last year had to kind of change their format. Normally the whole team climbs up Cotopaxi together and summits together. Last year, they had to split in two teams. And I think Cotopaxi's even changed the route that they go up up the mountain. I think, I think it was pretty dangerous the year before or something. So in hindsight, maybe it's a good thing that, that COVID happened because who knows, I think things happen for a reason, but um, so yeah, this year I'll be part of the team. Uh, We've started our fundraising efforts already and each team member raises funds so that we can provide as well for, for the mission, as well as what Romp actually fundraises. And when when do you plan on on doing that? What what's the is the I'm assuming there's a date set. It's set for the fall. So okay. uh, sometimes the weather might shift it a couple of weeks, but it's set somewhere between that September to October range. Cool, very cool. And and you've done some other climbing too, right? I know that. And uh, tell me a little bit about some of your other climbing adventures. Uh, so that was so that was 2020. So 2020, and that was my first climb. And it was so inexperienced. It was great. So, so in 2020, because Romp could not climb in Ecuador because of COVID and travel restrictions, uh, we decided to take our team and and kind of split it into different regions of the U.S. And also a team that was down in Ecuador, climbed in Ecuador. So all of the team was climbing at the same time to mm-hmm. basically add up to the distance that it would be to summit Cotopaxi. So I'm the only one in Texas and I almost went to Colorado to be on their team, but just with COVID and traveling and my daughter and everything else, it didn't work out. So I took two of my friends and we went to to Big Bend in Texas to our tallest peak of Texas. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited. It's Mount (laughs) Emory. And so it's nothing like Cotopaxi, but it was, it was a feat for me to start with. It was a great experience. It's probably good. I did that before Cotopaxi. So, because I just don't have elevation here, like a lot of the other states do. Right. So, especially not in Houston, I'm sub elevation right now. So, so for me, I, I kind of needed that. But when we were, we were hiking, I decided to get a big water container and it was, it holds a gallon, right? So I, I packed like a stereotypical woman for this trip and wore probably another person on my back and supplies. So I got lots of experience on how not to pack for that trip too. But I got this new water container and it's proof of why you always test things before a competition or before you do some kind of adventure, right? Within 10 minutes of this hike, my water container failed and it started leaking out water. And it was like my only water container. And so my friends still had there. So we had some backup, but it was super hot in texas it was like 90 something degrees in arid big bend park it's just it was a bad bad thing but i figured out if i laid it on its side a certain way that it would drip slower so i was able to keep that water with us the whole trip which was good because my friends didn't bring enough water so i ended up filling their jugs by the end of it and um learning that I should have actually tested out my pack before doing that. But that's what I get for buying like a $6 pack of gallon water container on Amazon without actually testing it. <laughs> <laughs> we all learn, we all learn things, right? 
<laughs> oh yeah. And I tend to learn it by failure to launch. So learn by doing. <laughs> and and so th- th- those are some cool activities. Obviously, climbing is a, a great activity, and and uh, and adventure, you know, trekking, whatever you want to make, whatever you want to call it. But uh, one of the really cool things I I know that you've uh, recently gotten into is speed skating. Can you talk about your um, your adventures into that space? Yes. So okay. So it's even it's even not that recent. It's just the first time I've really shared about it. So a few years ago, I decided I wanted to. I can say four years now. I can say four years ago. I decided <laughs> I wanted to figure skate after being an amputee. I took one class in college. And during that class, I, did, I invested, I don't know why I did this in college. I didn't have the money for it, but I invested $200 into my own custom figure skates. And so <laughs> I still have my figure skates and I saw them sitting in the closet and I was like, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to see if I can go figure skate. And I got out there and it was painful and it sucked. I did one lap. I told the guy he was running the rink. I was like, can you record this? I need this to be recorded. And he's, he held the camera the whole time, but he never pressed record. <laughs> you will never see that footage because it did not record. <laughs> and so by the end of it, I was so mad. I was like, why didn't you just push record? I don't even think I could do another lap because my prosthetic wasn't set for, for I think I was just wearing an Osterveriflex, which is a, a flat prosthetic. There's no ankle movement. There's, it was just flat. I still have that leg. It's what I used to cycle in. It's great for cycling bad for figure skating. So, um, because a figure skate has a two inch lift on the boot, right? It's an, mm-hmm. it's a, has a heel. So you need something that can adjust to the heel. So I went home, a little defeated and decided, okay, I, I have my high heel leg. I'll switch to my high heel foot. So I can at least, you know, account for the heel this time. And then that's actually like the next time I went, which is oddly enough, the first date for my boyfriend. So that's how I know it's been four years. But, um, so went went figure skating with him and, and he pushed record. That's how I knew he was a keeper. And so <laughs> you passed the test. <laughs> he passed the test. So, um, I, I was able to go 10 minutes that time. That was it. 10 minutes before I was in enough pain. I needed to sit and I couldn't do it. And I had the heel height and everything like that, but the alignment was still off. And so they had to, I ended up going back to my prosthetic company because I was tired of winging it at that point. And they aligned it. And as soon as I could put the skates on and it can walk in them on, on solid ground, I knew I could skate in them better. And that that's, that's the bug. The bug was I could suddenly walk in them and that was what I needed. And so what went from one lap, one lap to 10 minutes went from two hours over time. Gradually. It took me maybe four more trips of building up to get to a mm-hmm. two hour time limit and be comfortable. Um, and then Progr- I started figure progress skating. along the way each time. Yeah. 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 So I started figure skating and, and, and a figure skate is not easy uh, as an amputee because a figure skate has a toe pick at the end. And if you can't fill your toe on one side and you catch that pick, you're going to eat ice. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Mm-hmm. And so when I started figuring out some of the old moves, I, I mean, I had only learned basic stuff in college. I didn't learn anything too, too extraordinary, no jumps, nothing like that, a hop only. And so I, I talked with um, the aerodrome here in Houston and said, hey, can you guys work with me? I just need some basic help. And so they let me start taking some lessons with them, just 
with the kids. I'm with kids that are my daughter's age in this class and I'm the only adult. And so I'm doing some of these movements and figuring what I can do and what I can't do. And then eventually I got to the move, a crossover where one leg crosses over the other. And as soon as I figured out how to cross over again, most of, 80% of that is confidence. Um, it dawned on me that, oh, if I can cross over, I can speed skate. Mm-hmm. And I'd never speed skated before. And I was like, why don't we have more upright ice sports in the, like in the Paralympics? It's just ice hockey and skiing and snowboarding and biathlon. And I think that's it. Curling. <laughs> oh, we have curling. Man, wheelchair, I could have been a curler. There's wheelchair curling. Oh, see, okay, wheelchair curling. But we don't have we don't have very many upright sports, and we have no upright sports on ice specifically. So for me, I'm like, well, we could we could figure out speed skating. If if I can cross over, okay. Now bear in mind, I'm a I'm a below knee amputee. Okay, so that that poses differences for an above knee amputee. But with the right setup and the right technology and the right person to to figure that out. I totally see it happening. And then how cool would it be to have beep speed skating for blind and visually impaired athletes? I think it'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. And to- it's way less dangerous than beep baseball. If you ask me, nothing's flying at your face. So <laughs> for me, I just That's like, true. I can start seeing the categories. And so, and you know, you can already see upper arm impairments, things like that. I can see somebody has cerebral palsy figuring out crossovers. And so I'm like, why doesn't this exist? And so I wanted, to, and then I was like, okay, I want to start doing this, but I, you have to take those initial steps because it takes a lot to build a sport in the Paralympics, right? And I don't want to just do it to do it. I want to actually build a sport. I want to pull people in along with me. Because remember, I don't do everything great by myself. I like to pull people in. So, so we started this concept and I talked with my friend, Mr. Joel Bach at uh, the Colorado School of Mines. And he leads an engineering department and over there. And he put the test up to the students and said, hey, do you guys want to build as a prosthetic for speed skating? And they had a team of students, actually a couple teams of students, because now it's passed through a few semesters mm. um, that wanted to build this prototype. And so myself and one other amputee, Spencer McGinnis, uh, I'm a lefty, he's a righty. Um, also a baloney amputee, we decided that we were going to be their guinea pigs so that we could figure this out. And so he's actually in Colorado and he, he initially started the program with them and then um, left the program for, what, for whatever reasons. And then I've just been here in Texas waiting. So I can't be there in the lab for them to test it. So it takes even longer. But we were going pretty quickly on the prototype and then COVID hit. And then we, we, lost, we lost our progress because school shut down, right? Mm-hmm. And then basically it kept getting passed from semester to semester until finally we have a prototype now that I can, that I have in my hands. It's actually at my prosthetic company. They've, they've been building out the, um, the permanent socket so I can actually take it to the rink safely. But it was the first time and it was a, it was a three-year journey for speed skating with the university, but a four-year journey for me. And so I finally got it in my hands. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then I, I have to admit, I had a little defeat when I looked and I wasn't the first one to do speed skating. And then it dawned on me because, because, and I'll tell you, so I reached out to her and she said, oh, I just did it because I was curious if I could do it. And so 
Then it dawned on me though, that that's wonderful. Cause my whole point of doing it was to make it a full sport. And now I know there's people interested. And as soon as I started talking about it, more people said, Oh, oh let me know as this develops. I want to know, I want to get involved. So, I mean, there are athletes that are interested in speed skating and which is great because I don't feel so alone doing it now. And it's not just a, a test project. It's not, it's not a project anymore. It's actually got direction. And so now the next step is, is getting to the ice. And so it's in Texas, we don't have speed skate rinks because I mean, we barely have ice here. We only had it last, last year for about a week and that was long enough for us, but <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have hockey rinks here and basically they put me on a short track skate because they know I'm going to be in a hockey rink. And I'm curious what the difference will between be between all of the, the gear and the setup for speed skates. But really this is just the initial starting point anyways. And the more we go through with this, the more we'll start figuring out the and fine tuning the equipment and the needs. So, I mean, I I've been trying to reach out to like USS, the United States speed skating and, and had a had a guy from there bring up a good point that I should start looking at the rule book now on equipment to see what's not allowed. Because if I go and want to compete with able-bodied, I I now run into an issue with equipment. Mm. So it's like all these different caveats, but it, it's interesting and intriguing. And I I'm really eager to hit the ice. So I'm just I'm just waiting to get my prosthetic and then to go to the ice rink and and see what I can do. I've been also working with the ice rink to make sure I can try and get either a very, a very calm hour, or if we can rent the ice, because something about me falling down and actually slicing another kid's leg off is terrifying. <laughs> I don't need them to join my club that way. So, right, right. so I'm like, how, how can we alleviate any, any injuries? Let's, let's take away the bodies on the ice just, just for a few minutes while I figure this out. And then put them back on. Sure. And there'll be bodies I can dodge, but it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm ready to see what it feels like on the ice. This is the first time I've ever felt a prosthetic with this kind of movement. Well, there's, there's many, many, many folks that have a need for speed. So um, I know that that would be a natural progression and just like anything in, in my opinion, in the adaptive sports field that's where things start things start at a grassroots level one at a time so i think you're onto something there <laughs> yep go faster and left i already had my time in the velodrome so now i'm just putting it on ice taking away the wheels in in, in the in the time left uh caitlin i wanted to talk about of course be more adaptive which is where, where how i first uh met you um talk about you know why you started that organization and i know that uh it's you put it on kind of on the back burner a little bit, but kind of just talk about what it is uh, and what, why you started it. Sure. So be more adaptive started probably in 2015, technically, but not as be more adaptive. It started out as the world of adaptive sports and fitness. And it was the longest name ever. And it was just a Facebook group, but it was a place where adaptive athletes could come and share about resources was the goal, whether it was resources like grants, like the Challenge Athletes Grant, or, or resources like ourselves, talking about how we've progressed through sports, whatever it may be. And then the more that group went on, the more I realized, one, it started out mostly amputees because those are my connections. 
Two, I realized really quickly it needed to be more than that because there are obviously a lot more different disabilities in the world than just amputation. And so then it started becoming all disabilities. And when I mean all disabilities, I don't mean just physical disabilities. It was meant to be a place for all disabilities to come and have a safe space. And then it was meant to be all resources, not just sports. Anything from adaptive clothing lines to um, foundations that offer some kind of support, whatever I could think of. It could be uh, a workout facility that caters to people with disabilities, or it could be a, a rehab center, whatever it is, whatever resource is needed, right? And that's how it kind of became be more adaptive. It needed to be all disabilities, it needed to be all over the world, and it needed to be all resources. And so our focus is the database, our database that has that information. We're currently building it. We're currently looking for people to help us build it even. And we had a team at Colorado School of Mines also um, that it was a team of students working to in data science to progress in their education and they needed a project, right? So we put our database up as a project for them to work on it. And then we had a team and then COVID hit. And then that team went away because school went away. And then we had actually two professors and two science teachers or two high school teachers that were willing to actually be the first set to st start building the database. And we, within a month, got 75,000 lines of data put into this database. Not organized, but that's a lot of data. And that was just the US and it was only a couple fields. That wasn't every field of disability. That wasn't every location or every type of resource. That's a lot of information. And so I'm now I'm working to get that back. So um, that, that team had to go away. And then we actually had an issue with the database where it got deleted. So I'm starting not quite at square one because now we have a time frame and some understanding and, and a tech stack to work off of. But it just was enough of a blip for me to realize that it could be done and the time that it could be done. So I, I kind of needed it for me to see it, even though it was like there for a second and gone, it was realistic. And I needed that because for quite a, for a couple of years there, it was just a, a bit of a dream, right? Just an idea. But now it's actually something I can see taking a direction and having a form and someday being something that the world can actually access as a real resource and not just Caitlin's brain that's really scrambled inside and can't keep everybody's names together. So that's why we need a database because for a while there, I've been the database and that's not reliable. I mean, some days I don't know which shoe to put on. I walk out with a crock and a tennis shoe. And I'm, I don't know how to help everyone when I'm like that. But that's that's kind of the, the general idea of what our mission is. And it's just a collaboration of all the resources in the world, which is why we can continue to exist even through COVID, even though the last two years I've had to kind of put it to the back burner because I've had to literally focus on making money and paying bills for myself. But that's why we still exist is because all of these other resources exist and we need them to exist. And so we're kind of meant to be the middle ground, right? Where all of these resources can come and not feel competitive. I think it's really important that nonprofits especially understand mm -hmm. that we all offer something different. And instead of having to rebuild a new program that maybe we don't have the resources to fully build out, 
why not work with another nonprofit and partner with their program that exists? And then they can partner with one that you have exists. And it just, it's meant to be this, this level playing ground where it kind of puts it back into the hands of the users where they can go and find the resource that works for them. Because as a nonprofit, I can tell you, people come to you and they're not a good fit for your nonprofit and you're not a good fit for them. So if you have a, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if you have an option for them to go to, I think it relieves stress on the person and the nonprofit and, or not just a nonprofit. And you know, we work with business entities as well. I mean, you think of all the different medical equipments that are out there. We, we want them included in this, this database as well. So, I mean, it's literally just meant, it's maybe a little utopious, you know, this idea of everyone coexisting together, but until you have an option for it, then it is a myth, right? So you have to create the field for it. And then the people who want to be involved understand that now, now they can relieve that stress of feeling like everything is put on them. But yeah, I mean, our, our goal is, is to make it to where everyone can access resources, not just the individual, also the nonprofits, also the for-profits in a way that's safe for them to use. I I would like to someday even have some level of partnership with like GuideStar to say, okay, this nonprofit really is a nonprofit. It's gone through its steps to be a nonprofit. Not this nonprofit is a Facebook group that says they're a nonprofit that's actually just taking your money. So, I mean, I want to have all these different levels in, in the database that make it more beneficial to everybody involved. And it's literally meant to be for the world. Because at some point in your life, anyone and everyone can and will have a disability. It's just when it happens to you is when it happens to you. You can't control it. And, and if people have resources or information, or if people are seeking that information now in the interim, how should they connect with you? So they can go to our website, bemoreadaptive.org. And there is actually a, a tab where they can input the information uh, into the database, actually. And it's right now, it's not necessarily a full working database, but they can literally go into the tab input their information and it will be collected so that we can add them to it eventually once it is public. That's awesome. Anything else you want to share, Kayla? I guess the only other thing I can think of is, is that if people want to see more representation in media to reach out to some of these agencies that specifically work with people with disabilities now and, and start being the people that represent media. Because this day and age over the last couple of years, modeling and acting that I've been behind the scene, I've started to see that people are really pushing for real life people in media and content. And it's, it's so refreshing. Um, to not just see super fake people all over media. And it's super cool right now to see a lot of my friends on TV, especially with the, with the Olympics. They're in a ton of the commercials right now, if you're not watching. And I can say, oh, I know them, I know them, I know them. And it's so fun. But I mean, I, I think now is the time that if people really want to see us more represented in media, that they can actually take the step and be part of that, that movement or they can support those who are. And, and it's our chance to, to, to not just talk about how we wish it would happen. It's our chance to do something about it. Yeah, not only is it now is the time, but it's about time. 
It's exactly. So, but now, now is the time it's about time. And now we actually have the opportunity. So take advantage of it. 